0: Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Native organizations in Alaska are sounding the alarm over serious threats to subsistence fishing resources. Dwindling salmon runs in the Kuskokwim River mean more Alaska Native families are struggling to put food on the table. After decades of legal conflict, some organizations are backing a federal lawsuit against the state, hoping a legal decision leads to resolution. We'll get a look at hopes for turning around a dire environmental problem in Alaska. That's right after the news.
1: This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The federal government is spending another $327 million to help fulfill water rights settlements with tribes across the West. The Mountain West News Bureau's Caleb Radel reports.
2: The money will be used on projects to create reliable water supplies for tribes. Nearly $70 million is going to the pueblos of Nambe, Powake, San Aldofonso, and Tezuki in New Mexico. More than 6 million is going to the Nez Perce Tribe in Idaho. Roughly half that will go to the Southern Ute Tribe in Colorado. More than 160 million will fund a pipeline project that would deliver water to dozens of Navajo chapters, as well as the TP Junction area of the Hickorya Apache Nation and the city of Gallup, New Mexico. Here's Navajo Nation President Boo Nigren speaking before the Senate Indian Affairs Committee earlier this year.
3: About 30% of the Navajo households continue to lack running water. They rely on hauling water to meet their daily needs. This region has long suffered from limited access to clean and reliable water.
2: He says the completion of the pipeline would provide just that to a quarter million people. For National Native News, I'm Caleb Radel.
1: In Alaska, Kodiak's wholesale store, Cost Savers, is now under tribal ownership. People should expect business as usual, but as KMXT's Brian Venwa reports, it's the latest move in improving food security on the island.
4: The native village of Afognak is the new majority owner of the store, which will still be called Cost Savers. They've partnered with the Shunak tribe of Kodiak for the purchase. J.J. Marsh is the tribal administrator for the Shunak tribe.
1: I just think it's a great partnership. You know, it's time for our tribes to collaborate and work together.
4: And Candace Branson is the tribal administrator for the native village of Fogneck. She says they initially wanted to buy just an empty lot near the store to expand the village's farm programs, but ended up buying the store as well.
5: After some contemplation and looking at the financials and thinking about the impact that it would have to run our own grocery operation like that, and the impact on food security that it could have and on helping our um, bottom line.
4: Branson says for now, staff are looking at filling open positions and overall maintaining the status quo.
5: We are looking at just stabilization for the next year and a half, two years, and then we'll start on the development.
4: Marsh says this is the Shunak tribe's latest step in diversifying its investment portfolio.
1: We are trying to find ways to sustain our tribes in the future, especially with food security and putting our people to work also.
4: But buying cost savers isn't the only part of a new joint business venture. The native village of Afognak co-operates Malak Farms, which is one of six tribally-owned farms on the island. Branson says they hope to have locally grown produce on shelves in the next few years. The Shunak tribe also owns Kodiak Island Wild Source, a seafood processing business. Marsh says it's too early in the process to sell its products in the store, but patrons could see local seafood in freezers there in the next six months. In Kodiak, I'm Brian Benoit.
1: The American Bar Association is recognizing Native American Heritage Month with a presentation Thursday from Native Women Trailblazers. The speakers include U.S. Interior Secretary Deb Holland, as well as Valerie Davidson, former Alaska Lieutenant Governor and current head of the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. The other panelists include Abby Abinanti, Kim Tehe and Stacey Leeds. Abinanti is a Yurok tribal judge and the first California tribal woman to be admitted to the California State Bar. Tihy is Director of Government relations for the Cherokee Nation and served as the first senior policy advisor for Native American affairs in the White House. Leeds is an indigenous law and policy scholar and the first indigenous woman to serve as a law school dean. I'm Antonia Gonzalez.
0: National Native News is produced by Kewanik Broadcast Corporation,
6: with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com.
0: This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Kuskokwim and Yukon rivers in Alaska have seen disastrous declines in some salmon numbers over the past two decades. Officials restricted subsistence fishing on both rivers for four years. The reasons are complex, but the state's own analysis points to rising ocean temperatures as a key factor. The ultimate result is a dwindling food source that Alaska Native people have always relied on. Subsistence fishing and hunting can play a key role in communities where the cost of groceries from a store can be many times what people in the lower 48 are used to paying. Now federal officials are suing the state, alleging mismanagement. Some tribes and the Alaska Federation of Natives are taking the federal government's side. A decision in the case could settle long-standing disputes over how resources are managed and how Alaska Natives access them in relation to their historical and traditional uses. If you'd like to add insight to today's conversation give us a call at 1-800-996-2848 our phone lines are open now that's 1-800-99-NATIVE we're joined first by kurt chamberlain he is the assistant general counsel for the chalista corporation and he is a member of the native village of Aniak. hello kurt welcome to the show
7: hi how are you doing thank you for having me
0: i'm doing great thanks for asking kurt Joining us from Valdez, Alaska is Serena Fitka. She is the Executive Director of the Yukon River Drainage Fisheries Association. She is Yupik. Hi, Serena, thanks for joining us as well. And please feel free to further introduce yourself.
8: Hi, thank you for having me. I'm also a member of the Yupita Tribal Government and my Yupik name is Juchucho. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us again, Serena. And in Akiak, Alaska, we have Dr. Mike Williams. He is vice chair of the Kuskokwim River Inter-Tribal Fish Commission. He is Yupiak. Mike, you've been here before. Welcome back to Native America Calling.
3: Yeah, it's good to be back um, to discuss uh, this very important
0: issue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you again, Mike. And Kurt, could you please begin today's conversation by sharing your family connection to subsistence fishing?
7: So yeah, originally um, I was I was born and raised in rural Alaska. I, I grew up in Antioch, uh, about 150 miles up the Cuscoquim River, and we lived off the land uh, for pretty much all of my life. We hunted and we we fished all summer long, and hunted and trapped in the winter, and um, and then did some commercial fishing for extra income in the summer. Um, and so we, we resided prim- primarily off the land and we went to the store only a handful of times each year uh, because the cost of living for everything out there is really unsustainable. You have to live off the land if you want to live in rural Alaska or you had to at that time. You had to depend uh, primarily on subsistence. Um, in addition to that, you know, a large portion of our subsistence went to feeding the elderly and disabled in, in the community. So there was a large social safety net uh, while we were growing up. Um, and I, I'd be, I would happily be doing that uh, to this day, but in 1993 and 1994, there was a large chum salmon crash in the Yukon and Cuscoquim, and um, and we couldn't su- sustain our lifestyle that way with the commercial fishing, uh, particularly uh, the middle of Cuscoquim commercial fishery collapsed, and I decided to go to college, and uh, I ended up becoming a lawyer, uh, but given the opportunity i'd trade that back any day and Mm -hmm. so uh growing up uh yeah subsistence was a was a dominant part of my lifestyle
0: it sounds like a a really interesting way to grow up kurt and low numbers of salmon how do they impact uh native villages there in alaska
7: well, salmon are the lifeblood for just about everything in rural Alaska. Um, you know, they, uh, about 95% of the people in rural Alaska rely on subsistence for their protein intake. Um, in, um, I was out to a village in, in the region, in the Yukon region earlier this year, and we saw meat at the store at about $36 a pound. And the protein replacement for that is just, is, is not there um and also uh salmon provide or a kind of a keystone species for the region because a lot of the other animals and game rely on salmon uh to 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 come in so a lot of our trapping and you know the wolves relied on a large large diet of salmon but ultimately it it allowed us to be a largely cashless society for a long time um you know we were able to subsist off of you know what what we were able to catch and uh, and what cash we needed, we could generate from the river. Uh, and since then, you, we're experiencing our re- region has about a 30% poverty rate. And without that uh, that that keystone species in abundance there, over the last 10 years, I think the Middle Cuscoquim has experienced about a 30% out migration rate uh, for young people. So it it really is the lifeblood of our people in our region.
0: It really sounds like it, Kurt. 90% of, of families in, in these villages depend on, on the salmon and meat selling for $36 a pound. I think for a lot of folks in the lower 48, that's just uh, almost hard to comprehend, but it's certainly the reality there in, in many parts of Alaska. And Mike, I'd like to bring you into the conversation now. Um, how are the salmon stocks currently holding up in Akiak? Is there enough fish to go around?
3: Well, uh, for the last uh, eight years, we have been um, uh, highly restricted on the Cuscovo River and um, our uh, tribe uh, at the Akiak Native Covindi. Um, you know, we, um, for conservation purposes, uh, requ- uh, request um, uh, federalizing the river from the mouth to Aniak to conserve fish. To make sure that um, uh, all the federally qualified users or people that have depended on the fish uh, to um, have the first shot at um, uh, getting um, the, um, the um, <clears throat> fish that they need. Um, but, you know, We haven't uh, met the ANS, uh, the um, uh, amount or ne- uh, necessary subsistence need- meeting our needs. And um, it has been a struggle, but uh, we have established a co-management uh, partnership with U.S. Fish and Wildlife, in a, um, a with a, a MOU, a of, uh MOU, memorandum of understanding, and uh, formally uh, working together um, after um, the um, uh, fish, um, uh, the Chinook. Um, uh, CLOSURES uh, FORCED uh, NO FISHING AND uh, PEOPLE uh, WERE VERY HUNGRY AT ONE POINT AND uh, the, uh, THE ELDERS TOLD US um, TO GO OUT AND GET um, uh, FISH FOR OUR FOOD um, WHEN IT WAS uh, COMPLETELY CLOSED. SO WE um, uh, we um, HAD uh, 55 um, FISHERMEN sighted uh, AT THAT TIME WHEN um, we decide to go fishing, and uh, but it's that serious that um, we are forced to um, uh, to um, have highly restricted fishing, uh, and then uh, our uh, neighbors in the Yukon uh, for the last four years are, uh, have been uh, very, um, uh, very um, uh, in the dire straits uh, with no fishing at all. Um, mm-hmm but um so it's um uh in Akiak and the uh, cuscoan river from um uh, mouth of the river to anyak it has been um uh, we've um uh, definitely uh cut um uh, down a lot of our fishing and um and we're forced to do that because of uh, the low numbers of uh, returns for chinook chum and uh, coho and um of course um um, YOU KNOW, WE HAVE uh, THOSE WINDOWS OF uh, OPPORTUNITIES WHICH uh, PROVIDE US WITH um, um, uh, SOME RELIEF um, BUT NOT MEETING OUR SUBSISTENCE NEEDS um, FOR THE LAST EIGHT YEARS. SO um, so I JUST um, REALLY um, uh, APPRECIATE um, THE um, uh, FAMILIES THAT uh, SACRIFICED um, uh, CONSERVING OUR FISH AND um, and we have been able to um, at least um, minimum uh, meet our escapement goals. And um, I like to thank uh, the 33 tribes along the river, from the mouth to Nikolai, to um, uh, to um, be mindful of um, of salmon and uh, the conservation efforts that we're um, uh, doing. And um, uh, and the cooperation um, of um, the tribal communities along the river. Um, I really, we really appreciate that, and thank them for doing that. But uh, it's not our choice. It is we're forced to do that uh, in order for fish to sustain themselves into the future. Boyan.
0: Well, Mike, really appreciate you uh, explaining um, how those salmon stocks have been impacted and 33 tribes a- along the river there that uh, have dependence on these salmon. And um, we're going to get into this conversation in a little bit more depth after our break. And and Mike, what I'm going to ask you is just what you would like to see in terms of, of how these waterways can be better managed uh, for the benefit of Alaska native communities which depend on the salmon for their subsistence. And uh you mentioned co-management and and maybe that's a, a solution, but we're gonna definitely gonna ask you uh more directly uh what can be done, what uh solutions could be uh feasible there uh where you are in Akiak, Alaska. And I invite anybody who is in Alaska right now, who depends on the salmon, who lives uh, a subsistence lifestyle, either fishing or hunting, we'd really like to get your thoughts in terms of what the impact is uh, with the salmon runs and, and some of these other environmental factors that are impacting uh, parts of Alaska and, and other parts of the country as well. It's not just native folks in Alaska who live a subsistence lifestyle. There are folks in the lower 48 who do a lot of hunting and fishing well and depend Uh, do a lot of hunting and fishing as well and depend on those food sources uh, for their their family's health and benefits. So give us a call, our phone lines are open, we're waiting for you, 1-800-996-2848. We'll get you right through on the line, 1-800-996-2848. Wildfires are becoming a bigger problem across the globe. A new generation of indigenous fire management experts see a solution in international cooperation. They're drumming up support among fire managers in different countries for practices based on indigenous knowledge. We'll hear more about it on the next Native America Calling.
6: The Association on American Indian Affairs welcomes all to Tribal Museums Day, December 2nd through the 10th. Tribal museums may offer no cost or reduced admission, art markets, and cultural demonstrations. Tribal Museums Day honors Native nations as the experts of their diverse cultures. A map of tribal museums and more is available at indian-affairs.org slash Day. The Association on American Indian Affairs supports this show
0: thank you for listening to native america calling we're taking a look at the disputes over subsistence fishing management in alaska are you in alaska Do you rely on subsistence fishing where does your community stand regarding state or federal management of salmon join the conversation at 1-800-996-2848 that's also 1-800-99 native or you can leave your comments on our social media pages like facebook or instagram and a reminder you can listen back to this show and past shows on all major podcast platforms. Dr. Mike Williams is the vice chair of the Kuskokwim River Intertribal Fish Commission. Mike, uh, before break, you you shared uh, what the impact of the salmon stocks are right now where you are in Alaska and what could be done to improve the management of these waterways along the Kuskokwim River?
3: Well, for the last uh, eight years, uh, we have uh, formally um, formerly uh, had an agreement with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service when um, for conservation purposes, the river is federalized um, uh, for conservation uh, purposes because of low returns. And um, we have been able to um, uh, work um, in a um, co-management formal agreement um, when Mike Connors came, uh, the deputy uh, secretary to Alaska and announced THAT uh, THEY WANT TO DO A DEMONSTRATION PROJECT. SO WE ACCEPTED THAT AND WE um, FORMALLY uh, NEGOTIATED AN AGREEMENT FOR A YEAR TO WORK TOGETHER um, uh, ON THE um, um, MANAGEMENT OF uh, FISHERIES FROM THE MOUTH TO ANIAC. AND THAT'S THE REFUGE WATERS THAT are um, that WE HAVE BEEN ABLE TO uh, CO-MANAGE uh, FOR THE LAST 8 YEARS. So. Um, so in terms of, um, uh, of um, um, the state uh, waters where um, it's managed from Aniak to uh, Nikolai um, on upper um, in the uh, state uh, uh, waters, um, uh, the state um, has been um, managing that. So, so in um, uh, the um, uh, management uh, have been primarily um, uh, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Um, and until um, uh, we uh, issued uh, a concern uh, for um, the returns of um, our salmon. So we, um, uh, we have been uh, trying to um, uh, work with um, uh, state management um, and reaching out um, to uh, work with. And over the years, um, the state, um, of course, uh, we have uh, had advisory uh, we have advisory boards uh, to uh, deal with um, uh, the management of um, the waters, but uh, uh, but uh, those are advisory in nature to give advice to um, the um, biolo- fisheries biologist uh, that is in charge for the Cuscoquim River. Um, but uh, when there's conservation concern, then when it's federalized, the federal government. Um, managers uh, for conservation purposes uh, implementing the Title 8 uh, of ANILCA, uh, which is a uh, rural uh, priority. Um, but anyway, um, I think um, uh, the tribal governments on the Cusquim River uh, did the right thing of um, getting uh, on the table to help manage, because uh, we have managed our resources for over 10,000 years um, here on the Cusco River. We know the fish, we know the uh, wildlife, we know all everything that we need to live on, gathering, fishing, hunting, and uh, that's our way of life. And, uh, and we have been able to, um, um, uh, you know, I think uh, that, um, um, your co-management uh, of the RESOURCES is essential and to have um, the local uh, tribes and uh, local people to be involved in managing our fishery because um, uh, because of um, uh, of our dependence on salmon. Um, and I think this um, uh, one example that um, I think. Um, um, any of the um, areas can implement um, to get on the table, to right. help manage the resource.
0: Mike, thank you. Um, co-management, uh, your people, you know the fish, you know the river. Appreciate you joining us, Mike. And uh, I wanna bring Serena into our conversation now. And she again is the executive director of the Yukon River Drainage Fisheries Association. and. Serena, thanks again for joining us and and how strong have the salmon runs the salmon runs been where you are there along the Yukon River?
8: Well, the salmon runs have been really disastrous. Um, we've seen historic uh, lows um, in these last few years. We've filed for fisheries disasters um, 2020, 21, and 22 and 23. So it's um, it's just on the decline. Uh, we don't see any uptake, mostly with our chinook salmon, which is our our, um, our salmon that we we are looking out for. I mean, our organization was founded 40 years ago um, because of the declines in chinook salmon, and we've been, you know, having conversations and testimonies with um, for the fish, with management organizations, with no. Real um, improvement in our Irwin, in Ireland's
0: first step. Well, tell us more about that. What what is what is the problem? What is the issue there with regard to management? And you know, Mike mentions co-management as a possible solution. What are you folks dealing with there on the Yukon River? Do you think co-management uh, could be a good solution for you folks as well?
8: I believe it, it would be. I mean, our Drainage is 330 square miles. So we have a huge area. We have um, some of the uh, chump stocks don't go um, up in the upper reaches of the Yukon River. So a lot of those people depend on, on Chinook salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, not only that is that our, our river flows into the Yukon um, territory of Canada. So we have a international treaty to abide by, which we haven't been meeting. Um, so it's, it's very diverse. We've had, you know, 50 communities that we that really rely and depend on the salmon runs. And just like Mike and uh, Kurt has, you know, said. So it's it's really devastating when you have four years of closures um, and no fishing opportunity. I've been to many of the communities on the Yukon River the last few years and it's really hard to see the people just not um, active in their, in their in their fishing anymore. It's mm-hmm. it's very And standing. Serena yeah
0: and I want to ask I mean what's that like what's the emotional and social toll on these communities that that aren't able to fish like they once could?
8: i've heard people tell me it's they're depressed they have no they have no um it's a family it's a it's a family and community activity that people um the the people in the communities get together so you're missing out on you know bringing families together connecting it's also teachers responsibility to you know we have i remember growing up and you know my one of my first memories is um outside the fish rack when my grandma and my mom and the neighborhood elders are are together uh, cutting fish so it's, it's it's a big sense of loss. there's mm-hmm. a loss that is felt throughout the Yukon River.
0: So it's uh, there's a lot more at stake than just just the food, just the subsistence also the culture and the society is being impacted uh, hugely as you described Serena. I'm going to go ahead and take our first caller of the day now. We have Eric, who is listening on KIYE in Lapway, Idaho. Hello, Eric. Welcome to Native America Calling. Hello. How's it going? We're doing great. We're doing great. I know you folks do a lot of fishing there where you're at.
9: Uh, yes. And, uh, I just I think it was important, and I'm glad you have the issue and the topic today. Uh, today, right now, over in Tulalip, Washington, uh, Nespers Tribe is uh, partnered with many of the tribal nations throughout the pacific northwest and the other supporting groups that are within the pacific northwest about unifying and amplifying our voices behind the urgency to make changes to for the northwest to recover and restore salmon and you know with the nespers tribe we're spearheading the reaching of the lower snake river dams knowing that the dams are the primary uh, uh, purpose of the diminishing salmon runs and you know the there's so many other different uh, industrial effects that have taken place over time and you know and the mitigation for the dams has never been fully quantified and are fully fulfilled and you know my grandfather was signatory to the salido dams the dallas dam agreement that uh, inundated the Salilo falls on the columbia river so you know the indians of the pacific northwest have lost so much like our par- brothers and sisters in alaska and you know with the extremity of climate change and You know, growing industry needs and infrastructure failures at the dams and all the hatcheries that are being uh, infrastructure needs, you know, that's in the billions of dollars. And the government Mm -hmm. still fails to hold up their end in terms of making things right. And we're still, you know, uphill battles on all fronts from all areas of, you know, Mother Earth. And climate change already Er passed upon us. We're in dire need.
0: I want to ask you because you know I think for people that are listening to the show right now who who might not be from fishing communities such as yourself or and our guests in Alaska I mean the question just comes up I mean is it sustainable I mean long term I mean you just have to wonder is it possible to keep these salmon to to revive these salmon runs enough in these fishing um, populations to make them robust enough that, that communities can thrive in the way that they once did. What's, what's the likelihood, Eric? It's got to be at, at times in, in your position, you've got to sometimes be discouraged.
9: It is. And then one of the things that we wanted to um, do on our part is to actually find data and evidence that shows the diminishing salmon runs. And we did a, our fisheries department um, did a study and they called it semi quasi extinction. And so we have 25 stocks of salmon within and steelhead within the snake river basins that come back to the headwaters and in the by year 2025 which is just two years two short years away um 17 to 20 of those runs going to be are going to be in parish and are going to be already at the critical threshold of be, becoming semi-quasi-extinct in which they're at now and so you know it all starts with water quality habitat and that comes from the states trying to be you know and sometimes they're not collaborative in what they're doing and they're not um so we fight them as well, you know, and they're supposed—they should be at the same level of thinking that we are. But you know, the treaties are the only things that are keeping us in place. That you know, and they, people don't realize it, but our treaties and what they stand for are for the betterment of all, because we have protections and things that under trust responsibilities that the federal governments are mandated to all right. go by. And yet, we still have to um, struggle with them fighting against us, you know, on different arenas that. You know, that impede progress, and that's why I think it's important that you know we come collectively together and you know, and as hard as it is, you know sometimes you know that's why rules and regulations are put in place, and our membership you know have to we usually carry the burden of, of everybody else's problems, you know, and it compiles on us and mm-hmm. and it comes down to this, and this is the one thing I'll leave you with is you know two years ago we had to arbitrarily close down our fishing season because the runs were coming back, and the hurtful part of it is I my nephew, was coming to see me and he had his fishing pole and everything all ready to go and he said uncle i'm going to rapid river and i told him no Nep- nephew i said we had to close it because we aren't attaining broodstock and so and that's so that's the most important part of this whole thing is the escaping right. and broodstock into the headwaters and so it was hurtful for me to have to tell my own nephew that you know he, he wasn't able to go fish so those are some of the things that i feel that the people in Alaska have is going with the same thing with all the other tribes of the Pacific Northwest, and especially in California, all the way up the coastline, where, you know, they have those fishing uh, disaster relief funds that are being established for some of those areas. But, you know, okay. the natives, you know, we uh, we're kind of at the back end of everything, and we carry the burden for most everybody.
0: Eric, really appreciate you calling in today. Uh, great take uh, on the issues there that you're facing uh, along the Columbia River and, Kurt, I want to bring you back into the conversation now. As our caller, Eric, mentions, it all begins with water quality and habitat. And and of course, uh, you know, we have these different governing bodies that are managing these waterways, the state of Alaska, or is it the federal government, or in the case of Eric in Idaho, the state of Idaho. I mean, it just seems like a situation that's just so ripe for confusion and mismanagement, Uh Is there any way to just get that squared away in in terms of just solving these different disputes and these different discrepancies between these different governing bodies that are, are so so critical to the to the future of the fish
7: um yeah i i think uh there there is and i want to tie in and and this kind of ties into what eric was was speaking on and one of the things he discussed was treaty rights and in Alaska, the Native Alaskans have no treaty right uh, or, or no statutory right to, to subsistence fish. So when ANCSA, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act was passed, one of the last things they were working on was subsistence and they needed to get it done uh, quickly because uh, the, there was a lot of development going on in the North Slope and they needed to, to resolve the land issues uh, first and foremost. So, one of the things they wrote into uh, section 4b of ANCSA was the termination of Alaska uh, Alaska's Alaska Natives Aboriginal t- hunting and fishing rights uh, with a note in their uh, in the congressional record saying well, we don't envision a scenario a scenario where the Secretary of Interior wouldn't take steps to protect Alaska native subsistence rights and that's uh, footnote, and this, you know, it's been put on a to-do list, and here we are over 50 years later with that to-do list not done. Um, and so, right now, that led to the Anilca uh, uh, America. Oh goodness, I, I'm I'm not going to try to figure that uh, and that acronym out right now. Where they tried <laughs> okay. to implement what was first a native subsistence priority in Alaska fisheries. And after the state of Alaska objected to that, they watered it down to a rural subsistence priority. Um, and once Anilca passed, eh, that was um, that was struck down and by the Alaska Supreme Court as unconstitutional because it favored rural over urban. All right. and, um, Kurt, do, and so do me a favor,
0: Kurt. I need you to hold that thought because I think it would really help our, our listeners if you could walk us through... Uh, this whole concept of rural priority as opposed to to native subsistence priority. But we're going to have to take a break before you can do that, Kurt. So, again, uh, we just had a great call from uh, Lapway, Idaho. And I encourage anyone else listening who is connected to this issue, who understands some of these fishing rights that impact native communities in Alaska and elsewhere, Give us a call. Add to the conversation. Share your insights. Share your comments. Ask questions, perhaps. 1-800-996-2848. Once again, our number, 1-800-996-2848. We're waiting for your call.
6: Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of T-shirts, hoodies, and much more. All custom-printed or embroidered are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. Are you a welder? For over 40 years, D&R Tank, who support this show, have provided tanks and tank maintenance to communities throughout the Southwest and is currently hiring experienced welders. Info at 505-873-1101
0: you're listening to native america calling i'm sean spruce there's still time to join this conversation about subsistence fishing rights in alaska share your questions by calling 1-800-996-2848 and one of the guests that we have on the line right now kurt chamberlain is assistant general counsel for the chalista corporation he's based in anchorage alaska and kurt before break you mentioned uh rural priority can you explain that in a little bit more detail and how can rural priority actually negatively impact some of these Alaska Native communities that rely on the fish for their subsistence?
7: So yes, that that's a great question. Um, one of the big problems with rural priority and what we're uh, seeing in uh, particularly rural Alaska is you're seeing a lot about migration of Alaska Natives from rural to urban areas as subsistence uh, is is floundering. Um, you're, you're, you know, most, a lot of people just can't afford to live, live that lifestyle. I was one of them. And, uh, and with the rural subsistence priority, uh, the people of uh, the urban native, um, I know, uh, when I was on the board with the Cuscoquim Corporation, which is 10 villages in the middle of Cusco Quim, only about 33% of our shareholders lived in region. And, and with that, you know, you're looking at arguably 70% of the Alaskan natives in the, in that region are not able are not entitled to a, a subsistence priority, and this particularly is is painful to the uh, to Siri and uh, in the in the Cook Inlet tribes where you where a large portion of their population is not native or is not is urban, uh, their ancestral grounds are, you know, are the urban areas where they live, and they're, they're particularly deprived of that. And so so I'm sorry, and Kurt,
0: just help me out here. So these folks that are that perhaps have migrated to some of these larger cities and are are no longer technically rural residents. What does that mean? They can't come back now to these communities and fish? Is that how it works? Or, Or they can't fish anywhere because they now live in cities?
7: Not necessarily. So under federal management, uh, where the rural subsistence priority is in effect, uh, there is a a tiered hunting, or a, I don't want to use tiered because it has uh, statutory significance in Alaska, but there is a priority for rural subsistence. So those living in rural areas get to harvest first or get the first bite at the apple of when when there are subsistence openings. And so in the Lower Cusco Quim, you know, they would they would open these areas and make them for rural the rural pe- subsistence people to harvest. Where though, if if you aren't uh, if you're from Anchorage or one of the other urban areas, that opening okay. doesn't apply yeah. to you. You have to wait until their the numbers are higher until they lift that 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 priority.
0: Okay, okay, gotcha. And then let's say there's a a person who lives in a rural community in Alaska who fishes but is not native they benefit from that rural priority. Am I correct in assuming that?
7: Yes, absolutely.
0: Okay, okay, understood. This is a really interesting, very complex as as well, Kurt. and I'm really glad we've got you and our other guests on the show to help walk us through this. And I know also under threat is uh, what's called Katie John decisions. What can you tell us about the importance of that court case and how it applies to fishing rights?
7: So the the Katie John decisions arose out of the uh, out of a, a native Alaskan in the Atna region in south central portion of Alaska um, and what that was is uh, the enforcement of Benilka, Um that American oh goodness I'm not gonna give, give that a shot again the and and what that was was, uh, enforcement of the the rural subsistence and where that applied, and ultimately under Nilca, the the limiting language in there was under the the federal waters of of Alaska and where that rural subsistence applied. Because in in the Atna region, uh, there's a lot of people from Anchorage and other ur- urban areas that do go and fish from fish in that region, and so the rural subsistence priority is, is meaningful there, but um, Ultimately, after that trilogy of cases and the two sturgeon cases that came behind that, the argument, the the ultimate uh, argument is where the fed, where the federal uh, government has management authority and where the state of Alaska does in the navigable waters of Alaska. And so those those two law those, those three lawsuits were originally about uh, subsistence, but really the the large argument is over who has jurisdiction over the navigable waters of Alaska. And it it's currently the federal jurisdiction. Ha- the federal government has jurisdiction over nav- navigable waters uh, in river adjacent to uh, federal lands, and all other navigable waters are the priority of the state. And so the and and that's where it currently is. Although that's currently being challenged.
0: Okay, yeah, because the state's pushing back, and they're saying uh, that they should have the rights to manage uh, some of these waterways. Does uh, does the state of Alaska have a solid case, in your opinion, court with Kurt with some of these issues?
7: Well, I, if I were handicapping this, uh, the sturgeon case is cer- certainly not encouraging. Um, when Sturgeon Two was was decided by the Supreme Court. Um, it was not encouraging, but they specifically left the Katie John trilogy alone on that. And the state's arguing in their most recent motion that Sturgeon two uh superseded in in effect and that's not the exact language, but it superseded the Katie John trilogy. Um, and I and I don't want and I don't want to weigh into that until I see all of the briefs. The briefing's not done on that yet. All right. Um, but but you're gonna see a lot of it, it's definitely got a lot of people uh, interested and in paying attention.
0: Thanks, Kurt. And uh, you mentioned uh, the law Anilka and that refers to the Alaska National Interest Lands Conservation Act. And Serena, I, I want to come back to you now. And uh, I know that the state of Alaska has cited warming water temperatures there in the oceans a- as one factor that contributes to the loss of salmon runs. And do you feel that there's any connection there between these higher water temperatures and the state's management of the salmon? Is there a connection?
8: Well, I, I believe so. I mean there's when you're talking about natural you know occurrences and you know things that we can't control, but there's things that we can control. And when you're talking about a management system in river, like the Yukon River and the Prescokon rivers are, you need to manage the other portion as well. And so I'm talking about the ocean condition, ocean management areas, because our salmon do go out to the oceans and they do stay out there for a majority of their life cycle. So when you have salmon that are going out there and the ocean conditions are not ideal, and we have other factors which I catch with the high sea fishery, trawl fishery industry, Intercept fishery, it's it's just you need to make sure that you have control over those aspects and you can manage to those aspects. And Mm -hmm. so most recently, um, about 15 organizations did come together from Bristol Bay to Norton Sound. Kurt is part of it, Mike's a part of it, to really uh, break down some of the ways we can control um, management and better the in-river systems that are failing so it's, it's breaking down those silos and trying to make sure that you know just um, that you look at the bigger picture than instead sort of looking at in just the in-river portions of our salmon.
0: Thank you, Serena. I'm going to take another caller now, and uh, this caller's name is also Serena, coincidentally. Serena in Los Alamos, New Mexico, listening on KUNM. Hello, Serena. How are you?
5: Oh, I'm good. Thank you for having me.
0: Absolutely. I understand you're originally from Alaska. Is that right?
5: Yeah. Um, I spent 10 years living in a place called Valdez, and it is considered a royal community. Um, the interesting thing about Valdez is that you see a lot of people signing up for sustainable fishing, um, which are not in need of it. Uh, the community is highly privileged. I'd say most um, families have six-figure incomes, lots of them dual six-figure incomes, who still go out and max out the sustainable fishing. It's really disturbing when I heard, um, I think it was Mike say, that uh, people are moving from royal communities that are indigenous because they can't afford to live there. And I really think if you address um, sustainable fishing to limit it to Native people, it could increase your population massively um, on, on what's available to Indigenous people.
0: Okay, so Serena, just to to clarify here, these folks that you're describing that are, in some cases, dual six-figure incomes, these are non-Native folks who rely on the sustainable rural fishing privilege?
5: Definitely. Their computers okay. are full every year. And they don't need the food. They just do it because it's what they do there.
0: All right. Okay. Great call. Appreciate you calling in, Serena. Let's go back to our other Serena who is in Valdez, Alaska. And, Serena, uh, that's pretty shocking to hear from this caller saying that folks who are non-native are making a lot of money fishing there in your community. Uh, Are you seeing the same thing?
8: Well, Valdez, where I, I currently live right now, is not on the Yukon River. Um, I out-migrated from my home community of St. Mary's on the lower Yukon because there was not enough housing. Uh, The job opportunities were very slim to none for me, and that's why I out-migrated. So the current community that I am in is not along the Yukon River. So a lot of these communities along the Yukon River are remote. Um, You can only get fly into them or have things barge to them. Um, so it increases the living. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I I grew up there. I grew up in St. Mary's, lower Yukon River. Gas is $8 a gallon. Eggs, $8 a dozen. <laughs> and it's, it's pretty hard. Um, and to those people that are, do have jobs, you know, it's hard to, um, it's really hard to, um live out there still trying to make ends meet. Um and they they do live a subsistence lifestyle in those communities, mm-hmm. whether you're native or non native. They're they're choosing to live there and you know they're they have that that um right to fish, to live out there, uh to live off the land as well. Um, you know, I have family that have jobs out in St. Mary's. Their freezers are empty, they have no salmon. And my sister told me this last summer, she says, for the first time in my life, I feel poor. And I was like, Mm. poor, what do you mean by that? She said, well, my freezer is empty. I have no fish in there. This is the first time I feel poor because I'm not practicing my subsistence culture. So it, it does make an impact whether you do have an income or not because we're, it, our culture and our identity is so ingrained in who we are living off the land and harvesting those animals. And All I right. wish I can live at home so I can provide for my family and teach my kids how to fish and how to hunt and show them places I used to go as a child. So it's it's really hard. That one, I think, is... Um, is there, but it's, it's, you know, you're, they're living in the own community. It's, mm. it's
0: hard. It really sounds like it, Serena. Uh, absolutely. And appreciate you joining us today and sharing these stories and Kurt back to you, because uh, I think a lot of listeners are sitting here just thinking, how can this be? How can uh, people that Serena is describing, they're sitting here with no food in their refrigerators or feel poor, and, you know, the other side, you have these folks that are over here making six-figure incomes, and they're fishing, and they're using this rural priority. And I want to ask you: I mean, going back to the to federal law and and the Alaska Constitution, and is there any resolution here between how these two governments can work together to solve some of these problems?
7: Um, ultimately, well, the easy fix on this, and I'm sorry I didn't get to that; I'm I'm a little long-winded. The easy fix on on this is to amend. Section 4b of banks to restore native Aboriginal hunting and fishing rights. Uh, the state of Alaska currently views that as a non-starter. But if the federal government were to do that, the supremacy clause would kick in, and the state of Alaska would have no choice. Um, currently, the um, but there there are always ways to work together, and ultimately, uh, it it comes down to you know you've got dual you know you've got federal fisheries out in the ocean and in the state and in the state fisheries and they're not working together. And ultimately what they're, you know, and, and the reason Chalista hasn't taken a position in the Cusco lawsuit between the state and federal government is we tend to, you know, they're fighting amongst each other over who controls the water, but ultimately the native Alaskans are set along the sidelines lower uh, and not able to get the fish in the river. And ultimately that's where we need the representation is is on the board and in the uh, either we need structural changes for all intents and purposes there has to be a statutory change to restore uh some semblance of fishing rights even the the subsistence preference in Alaska is is not being followed because along the uh Yukon and Tuskokwim River drainage there are 120,000 people who are being deprived of their hunting and fish or their fishing rights uh that priority and uh in, in the midst of uh, near record hauls every year of uh of salmon but those are coastal fisheries and so one of the the large problems with alaska is regulating fisheries for the benefit of in-river um because there are a lot of out-of-state fishermen um that are on the north pacific fisheries management council and board of fish or who have a lot of sway over those and uh and a lot of that money that money doesn't come in there were just in the Cuscoquim River, there are 800 commercial fishing permits that haven't been fished in about a decade because that fishery is closed. But right. the coastal fishermen, which are largely out of state, are, are benefiting. So there's a simple fix, but it's not politically, it, it, yeah,
0: it, it, okay. it's not politically expedient. Thank you, Kurt. Appreciate it. I, I do want to share a note. We did reach out to the commissioner of the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. He was unable to join us today. Also, we reached out to the Alaska Attorney General's office, but we did not hear from them before the start of the show. And with that, we are out of time. I want to thank all of our guests today and our two callers. And please join us here on NAC Again Tomorrow as we take a look at efforts to instill indigenous fire management practices on a global scale. Hope you'll tune
6: in. Native American-made gifts at Ho-Chunk, Inc.'s Sweetgrass Trading Co. include food, beauty, and wellness items from across Turtle Island. Christmas delivery available for orders placed by December 18th at SweetgrassTradingCo.com. Ho-Chunk, Inc. supports this show. Lakota made indigenous first medicines and eco friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients, and all can be found at LakotaMade.com who support this show. <laughs>
3: COVID-19 is a great place to live. We will be able to with out the vaccine. We will be to vaccines.gov. We will the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid
0: Services. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico. By Quanic Broadcast Corporation, a Native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by
4: Brent Michael Davids, Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.